All right. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Just to get started this morning, I've got an opening question for you. How many of you made some sort of New Year's resolution back in January? All right. Only one that raised their hand. All right. One other. All right. So how's it going? If you made a New Year's resolution back in January, how's it going as we enter into the halfway point month of the of the year? June, obviously, at the end of June, we, we hit the halfway point. And I was, I was thinking every year um, I try to evaluate things, and, and most of us understand our own sinfulness and our own shortcomings and, and where we fall short so often. And I, I jot some things down, and uh, one of the things I, I strive to do, to the best of my ability, I teach, I teach Bible at Inner City, uh, Baptist High School, and I've been there for a number of years doing that. And I assign Bible reading to the kids. So I guess it would be a terrible thing if their Bible teacher didn't read the same types of things that they that they were doing. So I, I seek to do that every year, and I have a, a chart laid out, uh, Old Testament reading and New Testament reading and so forth. But it is an interesting thing. You can make a resolution to read through your Bible in a year, and you can evaluate it all that you want. But the most important thing is, am I actually getting something out of my reading, and am I, am I seeking to live by it? Would be a more important thing. A check mark next to a box probably values little, other than maybe a pat on the back. I, I, I got to the end of December and I did it. I, I accomplished my goal. But if we're not actually being changed by the Word of God, then it's having very little value. So this morning, what I would like to, to look at from the book of First Peter is a passage that actually begins in chapter one. We're actually going to be focusing just on a couple of verses in, in chapter two primarily. But I am going to start uh, with the idea, simple, that, that Peter is trying to lay out here as a basic argument throughout 1 Peter chapter 1. And that is that uh, Christians, that Christians need to develop a desire for the Word of God. Christians need to develop the, the desire for the Word of God. He starts off in a section in uh, chapter 1 in verse 13. It says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter really lays out responsibilities for the Christian. One of the basic responsibilities that he has here as Christians are enduring through different trials, different issues of life, suffering through life, is that they need to fix their hope on God. And they need to fix their hope on God in such a way that they are distinctly different from the people that are around them. That people, when they look upon a Christian, would understand that their hope is in something more than just this life. That their, their hope is in eternity. Their hope is in God. And it, and it actually reflects in such a way that it's obvious. That is, this person is separate. They're different. They're holy, as it says here in this passage. And then Peter goes on 
to address an issue as he goes through that what does that holiness actually look like in lifestyle? <clears throat> he starts to explain that, that we are to, as it says in verse 17, to conduct ourselves in fear during our time of stay on the earth. <clears throat> that our focus is eternal. It's upon a hope that we have. And it's certainly not in this life because in verse 18, that we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Peter is emphasizing their conduct in this world. He's emphasizing uh, the difference that they are supposed to have in their uh, living in this world. And then in verse 22 through 25, he emphasizes the love that they're supposed to have one, towards one another as they, as they live out this obedience to Christ. Verse 22, since you have, uh, in your obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. See, the whole point of Peter's emphasis here concerning Christians and their conduct in this world is there, there really is a core to that. Holy living and love for one another really has to stem out to our commitment to the word of God. As I am listening to the word, as I am being changed by the word, it is going to have a progressive effect in my heart. I am going to fear God in this world. I am going to set my hope on things that are real, not on things that are temporal. And I'm going to have a love towards one another. And as he argues here, it really stems back to the change that we've had in our hearts based upon what God has said concerning his word. And it says in verse 25, this word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So long intro to, to ultimately try to, to go in the broad terms of living holy in a, in a really a, a sinful world to come down to really the source of how we actually do that. And that is it's through the word of God, a commitment, a desire for the word of God. So our passage this morning, it's a shorter passage, but we'll start reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted that kindness. So Peter is emphasizing how these things can be accomplished, how we can live in this world, how we can love each other, Really, as it says in verse 22, fervently from the heart. How can that be accomplished? It can be accomplished as I respond to what God has told me through his word, as I look into it. So Christians must stir up their desire for God's word, our proposition for this morning. Christians must stir up their desire for God's word. Well, here's the question. Why? Why should I stir up that desire? So we have to get to the motivation first in order to understand the passage and how this passage should change our lives. Well, the reason first is because our desire for the word of God is conditioned upon our willingness to deal with sinfulness. See, I can't grow like I ought to 
and I can't actually live out the word of God unless first that word is pointing out specific things in my heart that I'm willing to deal with. And it's interesting the transition that Peter does here because he goes from a passage about how will people know that you're different in this world, uh, loving one another, actually committing and sacrificing towards one another. And he comes to the point after that section of commanding them really to love one another from the heart with interpersonal type of issues that will restrict somebody from actually uh, desiring the word of God for them to change. Because as we look at the passage, if we're not careful, it doesn't make, make much sense. Because here Peter is, is telling us live in a, in a certain way, holiness, loving one another. Then he comes to a, a, a pinpoint saying desire God's word, don't have malice towards one another and guile. And you're like, okay, so what's the connection? The connection is this. As I interact with the word of God, before I do that and have it influence my life to love one another, I have to deal with sin. I have to be willing to deal with the issues that, that are going on in an interpersonal way. And he actually gives many different descriptions of how that actually occurs inside of our lives. It says they're putting aside all malice. All malice. So what does that word mean? It, it seems to indicate really a general ill will towards other people. A, a, a sin really that is at the core of broken relationships. If you have malice in your heart towards somebody, sometimes we would, we would use the word hatred. It might be a little bit too extreme. Uh, but malice really does capture the idea of, I just don't like somebody. I don't like that person. Oftentimes in relationship type of things, uh, and it's an interesting one, we're so lopsided towards our own, our own viewpoint towards things. My, my filter is always through me. What benefits me? And oftentimes if I look at another person, I say, well, I just don't, I don't like that person. It's impossible to love them in the way that you ought to first. And secondly, it really is a self-focus. Well, why don't you like that person? Well, they did something towards me, or I, I don't like something that they said. See, malice is there, and it really is keeping us from developing that love and the, the development of the word of God as we, as we should have. Peter says the second word there is the word guile. It's also translated in some translations as deceit. This word indicates a two-facedness, in a sense a, a lack of integrity towards somebody else. And all of us are, are guilty of this at some level or another. If somebody really knew you for what you were, you know, uh, by yourself in your thoughts, uh, there would always be conflict because all of us have sometimes the most random thoughts towards somebody or the judgmentalism that goes into relationships oftentimes. Oh, I can't believe they said that or I can't believe that they did that. But this, this warning from Peter is trying to say, be the same person in church, outside of church, in your relationships with one another. I've learned this in a sense the hard way, uh, and I think that oftentimes pastors do that have kids in their, in their midst. Uh, I've taught my son Justin graduated last year from high school. My son Daniel graduated this year, and then I have uh, another one. Uh, Andrew is going to be a sophomore, and then my daughter Lauren <clears throat> is going to be in the high school for the first time next year. 
so I will have the, the opportunity, Lord willing, to teach all of my children. There's nowhere to run and hide. It's either dad is the same at school and at home and on the sports field and his interactions with the neighbors, or I'm not. I've, I've told my kids uh, on several different occasions and, uh, and told them in seriousness, if you guys are not seeing the same daddy at school that you are at home, then I've got to go do something else. Because the word of God and, and the relationships that we have with one another are far too important to see that, that level of, in a sense, uh, two-facedness. You are this here and you're this here. Where God is calling us <clears throat> through the, the word, through Peter, to make sure that your relationships are right, that you are the same person as you interact with one another, because it has such a, a heavy detriment towards the intake of the word of God. The next word, it says all guile and hypocrisy. It's closely related to the, to the, other, the other term, uh, the, the idea of guile. But it, in a sense, it, it starts to show our hidden motives, who we really are on the inside, not just what we're acting externally towards other people, but what we genu- genu- uh, genuinely are. A term that it doesn't get thrown around very often, actually there are two terms, but uh, the terms are cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. Well, cognitive has to do with your mind, the way that you think, and dissonance is a separation, it's a distinction. And oftentimes what happens in people is they feel self-justified in what they think about somebody else, but they know that they shouldn't do that. They're convicted about it, but they don't seem like they can actually get over it. And there's that that level of of a distance between what they should be doing or thinking and the reality of things. And it causes problems. It causes problems with relationships, and it causes problems in the soul, because at the end of the day, you know that, that you're a hypocrite. You're not living up to the motivation of love towards one another as it comes to the word of God, and then it gets even deeper. The next word is the word envy. Envy is really the exact opposite of love. Even to the point, it's a little bit heavier biblically when you analyze the two words jealousy and envy. Jealousy is I'm just upset about something. Somebody got a new car, and I'm just like, oh, wish I had a new car. Envy is wanting to go take the keys from them and judge them. Oh, that car's too expensive for you. You know, I... I'll take, it, I'll take it off your hands. Not that you would, but it's more of a hidden motivation of I want what you have even to the point of taking it away from you. And you see this oftentimes with relationships, a deeper level of just not being upset about things, but a, I don't want you to have that. I don't want you to have that position. I don't want you to have that award. I don't want you to have that because I want it. It's a deeper level And then oftentimes, how does it end up? It ends up in this last word, slander. Now I'm going to attack the person's character. I'm going to let them know and other people know what I really think about them. It's it's really talking down, disparaging conversations towards another person. Now why is Peter using all all of these terms? Because, folks, it is impossible to grow in God's word if I have these characteristics going on in my heart, because one of the things that we have to understand is this, and I think it's an important thing for for everybody to understand. 
Personal devotions back in the time of Peter was impossible. They didn't have access to the scriptures. Some of them might have had some level of scrolls concerning the Old Testament. They might have had, at this time of Peter, they might have had maybe a little bit of James, because James is one of the earliest authors, maybe access to a couple letters of, of the Apostle Paul. Now, we're talking about a personal, you know, me going home and picking up a copy of the scriptures and reading it. They didn't have access to that. Their access to the word of God was coming to the assembly together, worshiping together, and having somebody get up them in front of them and reading God's word. As an assembly, as a corporate group, as a unity. Well, can you imagine there being hostilities towards this person and this person as the word of, of God is being read and you're supposed to be encouraging one another, helping each other to understand God's word and live out God's word? If all of these things are going on, it would be, it would be reasonably impossible So Peter is challenging them concerning their intake of the word of God to desire it to the point where they're willing to deal with interpersonal relationships so that when the word of God is given to them on a personal basis that they can actually take it in and change and be the type of people that God wants us to be. So interpersonally, it has to be analyzed to see, okay, how am I lining up with my relationships towards one another? Am I lining up the way that God wants me to? And then secondly, on personal grounds, my own personal reflections upon myself. Peter says to put aside these traits, putting aside all of these things. Why is that? Because we're always called personally to put aside sin so that we can receive the word of God. Let me just read a couple of different passages to you that I, I, I believe other authors of scripture uh, echo this same the same idea. James chapter 1 verse 21. Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8. But now you also put them all aside anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. So these ideas are echoed from other New Testament writers. Why? Because as people are receiving the word of God, they have to have a certain level of of personal growth so that when they receive the word of God, they can grow as they ought to. So the command to put off sin transcends interpersonal relationships and our personal self, our reflection upon ourselves. So, here's the question. If I am supposed to desire God's word, what's the first thing that's going to come in to take that desire away? My lack of dealing with sin between one another and myself personally. So we have to be on guard. We have to be mindful of those things so that they would not steal that desire. It doesn't take a lot to, to, to have a desire for something and then it to falter at some point. All of us have had this experience at some point. I desire this year to, you know, perhaps lose weight. And then you go to that party after the New Year, and you see all of that food. And you might have a resolve, and you might have a desire to do that, but it doesn't take much to be like, well, maybe I'll do it next week. 
or I'll put it off a little bit. You know, I'll just enjoy the food. Well, it happens to all of us. It doesn't take a lot to squelch that desire for something. So we must be mindful. We must be careful about our relationship with one another and our relationship to ourselves when it comes to sinfulness. Secondly, our desire for the word of God is conditioned on our willingness to, to obey this command. Well, what really is the central command in this section? So we have to, we have to look for what, is the, what really is the core that Peter is trying to communicate to us so that we would change and grow. Look at verse 2. It says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So what is, what is the, the command itself? <clears throat> the terminology here, it almost seems like it's a byproduct of the first phrase, like newborn babes long for the, the pure milk of the word as babies would long. That's really not the point. The translation doesn't fully help us to understand the command. The command is to long for the word of God. That's the, that's the central idea, that we are commanded to desire God's word. Now, the point of comparison, uh, what Peter does here, is use a simile to show us what that actually looks like. Now, if you've ever been a, a parent with a child that wakes up in the middle of the night, you're not second-guessing whether they're desiring food. Okay, they're letting you know. And, and oftentimes, we've had four kids. Some of the kids were great. They would, by the third month, they were sleeping through the night. And then came my Lauren. I don't think my wife slept uh, all the way through the night for a full year. She would get her up at 2. She would get her up at 5. She would get her up at 7. Why? Because she was hungry. And that desire for, for uh, nourishment, for food, was unmistakable. When a person desires after the word of God, there is no question whether they desire for it, desire for it or not. So the point of comparison that, that Peter is trying to show us here is that I am to long for the word of God. That's the command. Well, what does that look like? Like a newborn baby. Like a newborn baby that, that wants that sustenance, that, that, that pure milk. Um, and the point of comparison here is not nourishment, food nourishment. It really is the nourishment of the word of God and what that does for us. So how should we long we should long for pure milk. And notice that uh, the, the adjective there, for the pure milk of the word. Now, what is that contrasted with? As I desire for the purity of the word of God, that's being contrasted with the sinfulness that I can so easily fall into. Interpersonally and personally. And that is the point of, of comparison is that a, a child is longing for pure milk, not sinfulness, not for things that would take us away from, from that focus, but certainly on the focus of God's word in its purity. And then what is the result of the command? The result of the command, it says there, that you may grow in respect to salvation, that you may grow so spiritual growth really is the ultimate reason that we do this, that I would grow spiritually. Now, in last hour in Sunday school, uh, the passage that we were looking at did include the word of God and, and the, uh, the obedience to the word of God as we, as we wrestle and struggle with this life, the endurance of this life. 
the word of God progressively helps us to grow as I'm putting off the old man and as I'm obeying it as I understand it. And it's, it's interesting uh, throughout life. I've been saved since I was 13 years old. I grew up in church, but I, I didn't actually come to Christ having known the word of God for a long time. I was in the Iwana program at First of Troy for years. Went through Sparky's, got the plaque, still have it, have the sash with all of the different uh, awards. The interesting thing was, I didn't know Christ. I had memorized all of those verses. I remember to this day learning Romans 1.16, P is for power, and you see a man's arm with this bulging bicep. Remember it like it was yesterday. But I didn't understand the power of God in salvation because I had not come to Christ. There was no growth based upon the word of God. Uh, the, the growth came, as it says earlier in this passage that we, that we read, that the word of God is what actually gives us life. And as I, as I continued, uh, you know, listening to the word of God, I was unsaved. Uh, a man came into my life. His name is Dave Doran. He is my pastor now. I, I, I work uh, at Inner City, and he is the senior pastor. He was my youth pastor for a few years at uh, First of Troy. He came when I was, I believe, in going into the eighth grade. It's an interesting relationship that I had with him. I didn't like him, but I did like him. It's a really, really cool youth pastor. Very faithful to God's word. But I was a rebel at heart. I knew the word of God. And oftentimes what, what he was doing on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning in Sunday school is teaching the word of God faithfully, and it had a hardening effect on me. I just became more rebellious, kind of fighting against that. And then God got a hold of my heart. When I was 13 years old, God, God revealed to me that this word was truth, that I needed to embrace this word, the word of God. So God saved me. And gave me that desire. Now, what type of desire does a 13-year-old have for the Word of God? It depends. I remember early on, uh, I was a part of a extension of Awana. Uh, some of you know, know this name, having uh, been at First Detroit for a time. Rick and Connie Stomps were the Awana directors over there for years. And they had a bunch of us in. I had just been saved uh, months before that, and they had an extension in which it was a lot more intensive reading of God's word. And I soaked it up. I could not wait to get home from school and read through the section of God's word. Why? Because as God changed my heart, there started a basic desire for the word of God. But I tell you what, it's, it stands true. What's the first thing that comes in that starts to squelch that desire? Sin. Interpersonal relationships. People that you don't get along with is the first challenge against desiring for the pure milk of the word of God. And it's very true. And it's very true in many of our lives. It's the first challenge that we face. Why? Because I am supposed to be growing by the word of God. But oftentimes I am not. Because I'm letting other things come into my life that, that uh, really resist that. So we need to be willing to, to take away those things, to, to deal with what God is saying here, that I am to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. Well, how do I do that? What, is, what would be some practical things that I can do to stir up that desire? First of all, deal with sin. 
Secondly, be practical. I know that oftentimes uh, in teaching kids, uh, I start with seventh grade and then I teach all the way up through senior Bible. And I don't expect my seventh graders to read as much of the Word of God as my twelfth graders. They haven't been saved as long. Many of them have never had, you know, quote-unquote personal devotions their whole life. So typically my challenge for them is try to read a chapter a day as best that you can. I assign to the, the seventh graders when they first come in the book of Genesis. They have to read all 50 chapters. Usually give to them about, uh, about a month or so to, to read that. And when I assign the book of Genesis to some of the kids that have never read through it before, first thing that they do is, all right, how many chapters are here? And then they start looking through it and it says 50. Okay, chapter 50. And they're like, I can't, I can't do that. But the desire is built up as the person is disciplined in that reading. Next thing you know, the person is finishing up the book of Genesis and they're like, there's a bunch of stuff in there I've never even seen before. And you start to see that level of excitement going, okay, now we're going to read through the book of Exodus. What's going on in Exodus? I've heard some stories and I've seen some flannelgraph things of a Red Sea being split and some people. But you start to engage in the reading of God's word actively. It starts to develop that desire. Have you ever struggled with a sin and memorized a verse to ponder? It's not that, I remember this illustration years ago. A lady was trying to lose weight, so she took some self-discipline uh, passages and actually taped them on the, on the handle of her refrigerator. Well, it's not like a force field. If, if, you, want the, if you want the late night snack of the, you know, the, the leftover cheesecake that's in the fridge, what's it going to do? You, you touch the fridge and it like shocks you or something? That's really not the point. The point is you look at the word of God for what it actually says concerning self-control and you obey it. And guess what happens the next time that you obey it? The desire becomes more and more intense. You say, I had success. I obeyed God. I obeyed what he wanted me to do. And that, that uh, memorization and that meditation and being changed by the word of God is progressive in the sense that it actually does affect change inside of our hearts. So Peter is saying that we put aside certain things, certain sins, certain ideas, that we develop a desire for the word of God. And then he ends this section and says in verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now why is he putting that in there? If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And what does that have to do with? These things are impossible for somebody who has not embraced Christ. These things are impossible. The Pharisees found that out. I think that many religious people find that out. Where is the power to actually do this? I feel almost helpless to be able to do anything to affect my own change. Why? Because we can't change ourselves. You, you do find moral people that, that can change in certain ways. A classic illustration, I, I knew a man <clears throat> that went from one thing to another to another in order not to fall back into certain patterns that he had developed earlier into his life. But the point was this, he had never really changed because there had been no change in his heart. See, a person that can actually change the way that they personally interact with one another, how they develop that desire for God's word is the person who has tasted the kindness of the Lord. Have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? 
And that is, have you, have you looked at God's word to the point where it says in verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. Has the word of God actually changed your heart? That's what Peter is saying here. You say, well, I'm frustrated. I don't seem to be able to do these things. Well, that's because we're not able to on our own strength. That desire is, is stemming out of the life of God that's flowing through our heart. The type of relationships that we are to have with one another is because God is changing my heart to love both him and others the way that I should. And all of this is being affected through the intake of God's word. So this morning, as we reflect upon this passage and what Peter is trying to communicate to us about change, that is obvious that there's holiness, there's love towards one another. How is that being accomplished? It's actually being accomplished through the interactions with God's word. Are you willing this year, looking back on the year and saying, well, I kind of committed to developing my devotional life a bit better in January. Well, it's June. How are we doing? How are you doing in your Bible reading? Are you cultivating it? Are you memorizing it? Are you looking into it and, and allowing it to change our hearts to the point where there is visible, real change that's going on among others and among ourselves personally? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and what it teaches us, Lord. I do pray that it would not return to you void, that it would accomplish that which you have set out for it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.